0: A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back, faithful listeners. This is episode 16, Paul and the Powers. We're going to be discussing the context of acts 19 uh, one of the famous episodes in the book of acts where paul is spreading the gospel in various cities of the roman empire back in the day to help us with that is ben ben is here with us and he's going to talk about just generally about what acts 19 is about what is going on in this chapter in the book of acts okay
1: okay Okay, so in uh, Acts 19, it basically begins with Paul arriving in the city of Ephesus, and he finds some disciples there who are disciples of John the Baptist, who we've read about in in the gospel, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and and John. Um, And John, it's helpful to remember that John preached a message, and the message was, um, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus took that very same message. And that was his message at the beginning. So so Jesus had a message that began with John. And anyway, John's message has already reached Ephesus, but they actually haven't heard about Jesus himself. So when so Paul finds people who have heard the early message of Jesus without actually hearing about Jesus. And he wants to know, do they know about Jesus? Do they know about the spirit of God? And they say mm-hmm. that they haven't. But what's kind of remarkable here is that, is that John's message has made them, open to the message about Jesus, and they receive it. Um, Yeah, so then after that, we read that Paul spends about two years in Ephesus, and he spends that time proclaiming his message, uh, first in the synagogue, and then in a lecture hall uh, to a broader audience, and and it says that in Acts 19.10, it says that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So in this chapter, what I'm interested in is, what is it that what is it with Paul's message? And we don't actually get the message in this chapter, but we kind of see what it does to the city when, when what it does is it causes a riot. So <laughs> that's what we're trying to understand. So moving along, Paul's message is getting out there um, in the city and he's, he's there for a long time, two years. Well, what we hear next is that um I think we mentioned this before. First Corinthians 4:20, Paul writes that the kingdom of God depends not on talk but on power. And in Ephesus, this kind of comes out in a strange way, where where Paul, um, even then a handkerchief that he's touched or or garments that have touched him, when people take those to other people, they they are they end up getting healed or, or released from demons. And and these are strange kind of miracles. They're sort of out of character. With the other types of miracles we see in the new testament as far as i can tell uh, maybe there's somewhere earlier in acts where something like this happens in jerusalem too um, but what i observed when i was looking at this is that is that in these miracles um these items are acting like magic charms they're kind of giving the ephesians the kind of miracles that maybe that they were already expecting given their given the way the role that magic played in their in their way of life um yeah, well, anyway, so there's a group of exorcists, there are seven Jewish exorcists that live in Ephesus, and, and they recognize that Paul has some kind of spiritual power, uh, maybe through these, these miracles. And they decide to, in their work, trying to free somebody from, from some kind of oppression, demonic oppression, they think that they can help him by appealing to the power that Paul's been proclaiming. Uh, And this is remarkable. Um, They say in 1913, they say, I adjure you by Jesus who Paul proclaims and the evil spirit replies, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know, but who are you? And then this, the person that they're trying to help empowered by the evil spirit, apparently just beats them all up and they're driven away naked and wounded. So they thought that this is how spiritual power works. And it turns out that it didn't work out so well for them and that and it's like it's hard to really know what to make of that, um, except for that the people in the city, what they made of that when they heard about this is that they were amazed at what happened and it inspired them and inspired many people who had become believers in Jesus, realizing that Jesus is different than the other spiritual powers in some sense um, to gather up their magic books and, and sort of their magic merchandise and burn it in, the, in public. Uh, and it says this is worth about 50,000 silver coins of, of stuff that's burnt on that, in that book burning. So that's a little bit awkward. Book burnings are never, uh, never a good feel. <laughs> we got one happening in Acts 19 here. Okay, so after the book burning, there's a silversmith named Demetrius. Mm-hmm. And he notices that if we're burning $50,000 or 50,000 silver pieces worth of magic merchandise that maybe his business of producing, um, of literally producing idols or in a non-derogatory sense of that word, (laughs) um, is under, is under threat. And he says that Paul is persuading many people to say that gods made with hands are not gods. And that's literally what he does is he makes gods with his hands and sells them. That's how he makes a living. And that's how many people in Ephesus make, make a living and also spend their money. And so this causes a riot. He, he, um, he manages to convince the other tradespeople that Paul is a threat to their way of life. And there's a, and there's a riot, a near, I call it a near riot in the city. And then the chapter kind of ends with a town clerk trying to convince everybody to go home and, and just walk it off. Um, and and seems to be successful at that. So that's what's act. That's what that's acts chapter 19. It's Paul goes to a city. He meets with some people who have heard the message of John. They're persuaded by his message of Jesus. And they, um, he's, he spreads his message to everybody. There's a little bit of opposition from Jewish people, but nevertheless, he's there for two years spreading his message. Um, he gets a reputation for spiritual power. People try to cash in on that reputation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go the way it, it, it's planned. The people who've received his message end up rejecting uh, the magic and the merchandise associated with magic that they've been that's been part of their life. And this really upsets the people who produce and sell said merchandise. And and then the whole city's in uproar um, because Paul's message. Which is just, which is not just talk. He says it's power, not just talk, but it's also um, economically damaging to this particular way of life in, in the city of Ephesus, and that's that's basically the story.
0: Yeah, there's a lot going on in this chapter. Very exciting chapter. I mean, if this was in video, if there was a series on Netflix or whatnot, this would be a very exciting episode. <laughs> I never finished that Bible series.
1: Not sure if it made it in there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love watching documentaries because, I mean, it just helps to bring the context. It just just makes it easier to see it come alive. So Paul was here at Ephesus for at least two years, right? It's so easy to just read a chapter and not realize you're reading the summary of two years of efforts and work and maybe there's a riot happened towards the very end and that's what calls Paul to say, well, maybe I should go on and continue my work somewhere else. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. So at some point we are going to share a link to a sermon that Ben preached at his church recently on this very topic. Uh, so we're going to mention maybe some things that you will not necessarily hear over there. Maybe you will, but uh, yeah, let's talk about that sermon and the experience, what led to it and uh, how was the writing of that or maybe even the preaching?
1: Yeah. So the preaching was just recording it and handing in an MP3. So that was easy. (laughs) The writing of it is the hard part. (laughs) Um, Yeah. They, so the, Acts nineteen. I when I I got to pick a chapter in Acts, like sort of after seventeen or something, and I thought, okay, nineteen looks interesting. I didn't know what to say about it, um, but it made me really uncomfortable. Um, book burnings are generally frowned upon, uh, mm-hmm. seen as a bad sign of things to come, and so we got a chapter here where where the book burning is kind of seen as good i guess the chapter portrays that as good so i thought okay this is going to be fascinating um yeah yeah and also the the this chapter involves it involves uh, some demon a demon as a character or or demons are taken for granted and we have this exorcism that goes badly like and it's kind of hard to um to talk about that kind of thing in the modern world um mm-hmm. so you read Rudolf bultman a great deal i haven't read very much of him at all mm-hmm. um, but he's famous for a phrase is he not it's a simple phrase it's like you can't use a wireless and mm-hmm. believe in the world of angels and demons at the same time was it, was it something like that yes yeah yeah so so he He's Bolt. Boltman is convinced, and and many modern people are convinced that, and maybe I should say many modern Western people, are convinced that spiritual powers are ultimately due to either mental illness or to um, human constructions or projection or something something psychological, and and they don't want to reify those concepts, but the Bible, uh, I'm not saying that the Bible's right when it describes demons or angels or whatever. I'm just saying that in the biblical author's perspective, uh, there's no real like suspicion of these concepts, right? They just, they explain the world around them using angels and demons. And if you want to read their stories, that's what they're going to talk about. So you just have to get over it and work with it somehow, (laughs) but to preach Mm -hmm. about it, I'm a little bit, it's a little bit tricky. It's a little bit tricky. Um, yeah. So one one more aspect of this that was more complicated to me was we had just been through an indigenous uh, theology class. We did it on Zoom during from with this church over several weeks with a with a Canadian theologian who's an indigenous man and and he's described stories of coming to Christ maybe in the '70s in a of a Pentecostal context in Canada
0: mm-hmm. and
1: in that context he was told that his indigenous spirituality was, was something he's going to have to leave behind. Um, and in fact, he was told he had to like destroy all of his rock music records as well. <laughs> and so mm. the first steps in his spiritual journey really kind of resembled this book burning in Ephesus. Mm. But in the course of this class, we kind of realized that that was an inappropriate way for him to for people to encourage him to respond to the gospel right up front like the gospel to indigenous people in the year of our lord 2021 cannot include um a requirement to re- leave behind your indigeneity and it's probably messed up if you're destroying your records as well <laughs> your rock music <laughs> um, or hip-hop or whatever it is we're listening to these days so <laughs> So, Mm -hmm. so that's was that was another, so there's also, I've had, I've had friends down the years throughout the years and I have, I have some friends now who, who actually do think that they interact with demons. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I kind of was preparing the sermon thinking to myself, well, if they were to hear this, would they think I'm, would I be respecting their experience uh, in what I have to say about it? So Mm -hmm. There's actually quite a bit of quite a bit of tension in many directions trying to put this together.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people nowadays, especially progressive Christians, right? Are weary of this whole idea of missions, evangelism, you know, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Cause then you're like, uh-oh, what does that mean? What well, usually happens when Christians go to a place that Christians have never been to before? And that brings up a lot of issues, a lot of questions. And so, yeah, definitely this is is a difficult topic. Uh, On the one hand, of course, we do want the gospel to make this world a better place. And wherever the gospel goes, the gospel is gonna bring about changes. I think everyone recognizes that if we spread the gospel properly, And that's some crazy version of it. It will challenge ideas and hopefully it will make make, uh, the new hearers of the gospel more interested in being uh, people who do justice. And I think that's largely compatible with whatever the beliefs are of just about every group out there. I mean, all groups by and large believe in justice that you have to treat people, right? But I think uh, there's definitely another side, right? Which is what about their idea of God, right? Their idea of God or the gods or their pantheon and whatnot or their superstitions, right? I think even some people are uncomfortable talking about superstition, but what happens when the proclamation of the gospel calls a lot of these things into question, right? So I mean, I'm not providing any answer. I'm just bringing up the questions that come to my mind. And here in this situation in Ephesus, I mean, Paul's just kind of doing his work, right? He's not mounting up a campaign to like uh, shame the industry going on there. He's just preaching his gospel and things happen as a result of his preaching of the gospel. Uh, A lot of things were called into question. A lot of people were made to worry and yeah, that's what's happening in Acts 19 and that's what you tried to speak about as best as you could. Okay. Well, let's talk about what what are the main features of Paul's gospel here? We're talking about the preaching of the gospel of grace, Paul's gospel. What are the three main features that we should attend to in analyzing what Paul is doing here?
1: Okay, so I got what I got out of this chapter, uh, well, first of all, I think you and I both did this. We, we ended up reading a book by Larry Hurtado, who is a historian. He actually died within the past year, I believe, maybe a year and a half, but he's a first rate early Christianity historian. Um, And one of his recent books, one of his last books was called um, Destroyer of the Gods. And he tries to explain how the early Christian movement created a sort of a new normal when it comes to what we think about when we think about God and gods. So, in the beginning of the book he says like if you were to ask somebody on the street do you believe in god they would they would answer that question yes no maybe would, the question would actually make sense to them like is there do you believe in god right but if you ask that question in the ancient roman world before christianity really had much influence they mm-hmm. they'd be like what are you talking about like i believe in the god of this city and i believe in my family gods i believe in the gods of my profession my my uh, my industry that i'm part of Mm-hmm. In Ephesus literally, it was Artemis. Artemis was yeah. the one that they're trying to defend and Artemis had links to the city. And if Artemis was seen as respectable, then the city was going to make money and so on. So, so the question of like, do you believe in God? Like that's question is already the fruit of Christian influence mm-hmm. because in before Christian influence in the Roman world, it was more, there were lots of gods and it was um, considered normal to provide honor to whichever God was relevant to the situation that you were in. So if you were working with your carpentry guild, like you would, there was a God that you would honor along with your coworkers. Um, if you were in a city, you would honor your city gods. If you in your family, you would honor your family gods. And, and it wasn't a matter of having to keep every God happy. It was just like the gods that were pertinent to you. You might as well keep them happy. <laughs> um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, but if you hold a God in contempt by saying, I'm refusing to acknowledge that maybe that, maybe the, that, that was really seen as, as, as working against the common good of whoever you were with in that, in that domain. So like it was working against the good of your family to ignore the God of your family or working against the good of your city to ignore the God of your city. So the, anyway, Larry, Larry Hurtado paints a good picture of the ancient world. And so what I, I actually learned quite a bit from that book about what we're talking about here. Um, so with all that said, oh, you read the book too. Do you have anything else to say about it before I
0: give Paul's gospel in summary? Uh, no, I think uh, you covered everything. It's just, it's, it, it really does take a lot of work to read the Bible in its own context. I think a lot of people just read the Bible with today's questions with today's issues with today's presuppositions right yeah. and we don't understand that they were just unheard of 2000 years ago yeah so yeah
1: yeah so so in this ancient world uh, jewish people had a special practice which which we can call monolatry Monotheism is like the doctrine or belief that there's only one God, that all the other ones don't exist. Monolatry is the practice of worshiping just one God and refusing to worship any other God. Whether or not the other gods exist is an open question. So, But the Jewish practice was to only worship the God of Israel, who they considered to be the God of creation and the God over all the nations as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, and to refuse to worship any idols or to treat all the other gods as idols in a derogatory sense Mm -hmm. now in the roman world larry hurtado tells us uh, jewish people generally were not persecuted for being monolatrous they were just seen as weird so today we have people um, i'm thinking of like the amish communities or or mennonite communities Mennonites Mm -hmm. are all come in all different shapes and sizes, but yeah, but there are on a spectrum. There are people who say, we would rather live without technology. We are living in communities off the grid and please leave us Mm -hmm. alone. Like this does not offend me at all. (laughs) I'm just like, go in peace and enjoy yourself. Like I think this is the attitude that the Roman world had towards Jewish monolatry. It's like, if you want to do that, like go for it. It's fine with us.
0: Um, now yeah, let, me, let me interrupt here and say something. Yeah. The Romans valued antiquity. They were not really into novelty. So they understood that this Hebrew God, this Israelite God, or this Jewish God was an ancient deity. And so therefore it was worthy of respect, even if you know, they were not very impressed with this God. Because I mean, who were they? Who were these people? They were their subjects. So how powerful could this God be in their eyes? Probably not yeah. very, but they respected <laughs> the fact that it was an ancient cult it was an ancient religion and yeah they, they, their policy was to just respect the gods in general right yes
1: yeah yeah so um so with all that said we're, like what is paul's gospel what was he saying for two years that causes this riot and book burning in the end enough to mention this sort of like exorcist level uh horror story of this, of these seven people getting beat up trying to do some good. Um, well, I think the answer is this Paul was preaching a trans ethnic or universal Jesus monolatry. So monolatry, he gets that from being a Jew. Um, and the Christian message came out of, out of the Jewish people. Uh, and it's a, mon- it's a monolatry. It's about worshiping the one God. Um, it's a Jesus monolatry, just like we saw at the beginning of the chapter, where Paul finds some disciples of John. They're monolatrist; they're paying attention to John's Jewish message. But he says, "Have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about the Holy Spirit?" And they say, "No, we haven't." But that makes sense to us. So they entered into this Jesus monolatry, where which I'll maybe I'll explain a little bit more. But um, but then last of all, it's a universal or trans-ethnic invitation to Jesus monolatry so not only is Paul saying to all the Jewish people who were already not buying any idols from Mr. Demetrius (laughs) if Paul converted all of the Jewish people in Ephesus to the Christian faith it would not have affected Demetrius's bottom line at all I I suspect because like they already were not his customers but the problem is that he was he was somehow convincing lots of people to stop buying these things and in fact destroy their their magic merchandise in a public burning so um so it's this universal aspect of it that really has caused the trouble here i think in in Ephesus.
0: yeah I, I think this is probably the main thing i got out of the book i read the whole book like in three days It was just a fast read but this is the one thing that really stood out to me just how new how weird how unheard of it was for non-jewish people to all of a sudden just worship one god but to only worship one god to the exclusion of all the gods they grew up worshiping (laughs) so a full-blown conversion if you will so again non-jewish people greeks romans and others all of a sudden worshiping the god of abraham isaac and jacob and jesus christ and then refusing to worship any longer their family gods their city gods you know the the roman pantheon gods etc so this was something very very new
1: yeah absolutely so i mean if if you go to work one day and then i guess they have this at walmart or something like that you show up in the morning and they do their walmart chant cheer or chant before they get started i don't know (laughs) it's just a legend maybe (laughs) what if one day you showed up and said like i'm not doing that i follow jesus now (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe if you can think of a better example but yeah i'm imagining i'm imagining one day it suppose that one day it becomes clear to christians that um, that all of our iPhones are of the devil somehow, okay? And we all gather on Sunday morning and we just throw them into a heap in the parking lot and just smash them with hammers. Like, this is kind of what I'm imagining is happening in Ephesus. Like, people have spent their hard-earned money to buy these expensive mm-hmm. things that they think make their lives better, but really, in light of Paul's gospel, are some sort of, um, keep them in under some sort of, and and keep them in some sort of spiritual bondage or keep them in some sense, uh, outside of full allegiance to Jesus Christ. And, and eventually people who've taken Paul's message seriously, they just, they decide to commit fully to, to allegiance, to Jesus, to Jesus monolatry, and they don't care that they're not Jewish. And, and, and a lot of money, um, is destroyed. Yeah and a lot of sales are lost so
0: yeah yep so as usual christians fall in a spectrum when it caught when it comes to these beliefs and the practices right i mean i mean i kid you not there are christians that do not even believe in god they're called atheist christians but they're still christians meaning that you know they they, they believe in jesus they believe that he died he probably didn't rise from the dead or whatever but they believe in the message and they believe everything else it just kind of denied anything metaphysical or supernatural about it but there are atheist christians there are agnost- agnostic christians uh there are protestant christians that you know just keep things very simple it's just the trinity and anything beyond the trinity it's basically non-existent then you have catholics eastern orthodox where they have a liturgy that talks about angels archangels saints i mean it's it's a it's a whole cult right so the beliefs and the practices the liturgies betray different commitments so we we have options right when it comes to you know how to make this gospel our own how to to preach it how to worship through it and yeah what do you think about the different options out there and what do you choose yeah yeah
1: yeah i think i think that i was um i was really struck by this book burning and i've said this a bunch of times already and uh And I was thinking like you could easily take this passage and just preach a form of book burning where you're saying, okay, Christians, if we follow Christ, we are going to burn such and such out of our lives, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you know, and it just feels like a really dangerous game because basically whoever's holding the microphone gets to decide what it is we're going to burn today. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but, but I, I think I think the thing that that I'm trying to get at here is that in this chapter, it's magic and magic merchandise mm-hmm. that is the thing that is regarded as against the gospel, and yet the gospel somehow threatens, like rightly or wrongly, um, and that leads to leads to uh, to to re- big resistance. Um, now, on a personal level, like I don't have any magic merchandise. Like I know people who do, but. <laughs> I don't have any magic merchandise to burn like, so this, but does that mean that this chapter has nothing to say to me? Um, that the gospel is an invitation to a monolatry. Monolatry means worshiping the God and father of Jesus Christ, basically mm-hmm. worshiping God as the father of Jesus Christ, as the one revealed through Jesus Christ. Um, that's what this Jesus monolatry is. In the spirit. Yeah okay thanks oh you just upgraded it to trinitarian thanks so much (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. and to do so alongside of anybody who's interested so it's universal invitation like i anybody who shares in this jesus monolatry with me is is a brother or sister in christ um Mm -hmm. without regard to any other human distinctions so Mm -hmm. yeah so that's roughly the gospel um yeah but i i guess what i'm i guess what i'm getting out of this is that there are other things that f- substitute for magic merchandise in the world that we live in right now so really the question is how can i embrace the gospel and reorient and how does it reorient my life and my posture towards all other powers um
0: mm-hmm
1: does Mm -hmm. monolatry does jesus monolatry just mean the ceremonial worship that i do by zooming into a church on sundays or something Mm -hmm. um monolatry is more than ceremonial it's a it's a question of of allegiance what i hold what i value and what i hold in contempt um and how i negotiate with all the different powers around me um on a yeah. spectrum from book burning to just keeping that little silver Artemis on my shelf.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. So Paul's gospel is in a way simple, but it's very radical. And yeah. I mean, once you really think about the political economic implications of the gospel, that's when it starts getting really challenging. And I think that's where we start to see pushback from Christians and non-Christians alike. Like Christians are happy to hear Paul's gospel. But if you go deep enough and you talk about uh the, the type of economics or the type of politics that Paul's gospel would uh would affirm, then people start having issues. <laughs> so again i like what you said about worshiping god it's not just about your ceremonies your liturgies the worship of god is about how you live in this world do you witness to the righteousness and the justice of god do you value the things that god values namely marginalized people the poor and so forth yeah so yeah challenging so maybe we should
1: talk about the powers in a bit more detail, um, if we're gonna if we're gonna go into this a bit better. Uh, so, because because we have to like I think to the modern person, like I'm not not ex- excluding those. Well, other than the people who who I've known who actually engage in magic and believe in demons and say the claim to have experienced them. Um, I think for many of us, this sounds like a cartoon. So we have to bring it. We need to bring this concept of powers forward into the realm of what we actually encounter. Uh, if we're going to talk about Paul's gospel and the powers. Yeah. So do you want to give a first stab at it? Or do you want like, what, it, what counts as, as the powers against which the gospel
0: is held. Um. Yeah, well, I think it helps if you just go back to the beginning. So Paul was an apocalyptic thinker. So for him, the powers would be, of course, the economy, the Roman Empire, the rulers. Uh, But high and high above that, it would be the different demons or angels Uh, the power of the air, right? So there's a lot of invisible powers, ruling, controlling, and shaping the world, the physical world that we live in. So I, I think we should probably start there. That's how he viewed the world. That's how most people view the world. And so there's a lot of language like this, principalities and powers in the New Testament? Oh, for us I guess what today, you're trying to
1: say is that for him, um, like he didn't tune into the news, but but he imagined this world of spiritual powers behind the news of his day, behind the big stories of his day. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Like uh, you mentioned this many times, right? Where he says that if, I forgot the quote, but basically it says that if the if the if the powers that be knew who jesus was they wouldn't have crucified him right i'm sure you can give a better quotation
1: it's in first corinthians um one or two i forget
0: Yeah. yeah so yes talking about pontius Pilate, but even beyond that paul seems to be talking about something higher than than the mere facts of the matter right yeah so i think in our context today 2,000 years later, the the, the church is not just this little band of followers who follow Paul around or Peter or Apollos or whatever. We ourselves have become a power in many countries, right? So the church itself, the, the institutional church can be a power, a power for evil, many times, unfortunately. That has to be said. And so the powers involves again the economy governments institutions uh white supremacy i would say that that's a power we can call that a demon if you want that's fine <laughs> yep uh, this capitalism just fully unbridled capitalism is out of control it's 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 a power it's a demon uh there's so many challenges uh nuclear weapons i think they would qualify oh man, we, we, we do not have a shortage of these uh, powers at play and in conflict. I think that,
1: I think it's really helpful. Um, I think it's really helpful when we think about powers to, to appreciate the significance of the powers we can act, we actually construct or socially constructed powers. So a fundamentalist might say, oh, you don't believe in demons? Like, well, what about all the bad things that are happening in the world or whatever? <laughs> sort of, they, may, they feel like, oh, we're going to lose a big chunk of our worldview in the gospel if you don't actually literally believe in demons. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. The go- in the gospels, Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. Okay. Well, what is money? Is money a demon? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, money is a socially constructed power. It's a system of rules that we have brought into being by negotiating with one another, often by imposing on upon one another and by simply adopting what has come before um, what's been passed down to us, that there's this ancient worldwide pervasive power, which we can use the word money to describe. And just because it's socially constructed doesn't mean it's not real. Like, Who of us has has not felt the influence of this power or been like being stung by it at times, crushed by it at other times, or maybe exalted in other other cases um, for no reason? Mm -hmm. Um, Most of us live our lives in service to this power, socially constructed power, for that matter. It's very, very, very real. And it's also socially constructed
0: um uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah absolutely yeah i mean there are virtual powers even right they're virtual but they're real they're real and they, they are a real threat in many ways
1: yeah like so ideas can be power so money is a social construction um but there's like there's ideas and ideologies and doctrines that are that become powers as well. You mentioned white supremacy. That's a um, that's a that's an it's an idea or a algorithm for sorting the world into good and bad, valuable and not valuable. Um, I've actually I've actually been encouraged to think. I'm a mathematics mathematics person, and and uh, you're a math teacher, so we're both into math. Um, I'm not sure if you enjoyed as much as it, since it's your day job, but, (laughs) but, (laughs) but, uh, we both like, I think that mathematics um, has this sense that it's objective. People treat statistics as like reliable and objective and, Mm -hmm. and people treat mathematics as objective and they, and then we build an algorithm that says, oh, here's your credit score. That's objective. Like, here's how much money you have. That's objective. Uh, we built all this stuff, right? It's mathematics, we built it, but we treat it as if it's like an independent objective power. And then you start having algorithms that say, not, like in the past like, you know, um, 20 years or so, and especially the past five years, we have the machine learning world taking off where machine learning is nothing but matrix multiplication done lots and lots of times mm-hmm. in, in a computer. Um, anyway, you feed the machine like a thousand resumes of the people you actually hired, it notices patterns in a way that a human can't. So it's in a way it's more powerful than a human in this particular area. And mm-hmm. then you feed it new resumes and it's like, well, you know, I only want people that are exactly like the people I already have. Like, And so we, you build this machine learning algorithm, you teach it to mm-hmm. continue to exercise all the biases that currently exist in your organization. And all of a sudden it just hires more people that are exactly like the people you already have. Uh, this is a, I think that people will recognize this is a way to math, to weaponize mathematics into a power that perpetuates the current inequities and injustices in a workplace. And this is why um, this is a well-known example of, of a unethical use of machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so like lots of our powers literally, um, require a lot of electricity to do their computations at the moment. <laughs> it's, re- it's remarkable. Yeah.
0: yeah. <sighs> I, I know you talked about power, how for Paul, the gospel is not just a, about words, but power, the spirit, right? A demonstration of the spirit's power. And when you think about Paul's conversion, it was a very powerful conversion, Right. And he's more or less calling people to experience what he experienced, which is to see Jesus exalted and to change your life as a result, to change your life radically as a result of seeing Jesus as exalted. And uh, something I appreciate and I like about the Apostle Paul is that at the end of the day, I really believe that his gospel is simple. His gospel is all about Jesus. Like I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Corinthians are fighting as to who's the, the best apostle or leader. Cephas, Apollos, Peter, even Christ. And Paul says, was Paul crucified for you? No. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he probably liked having fans, but he was saying, look, I'm not the Lord, okay? I'm not the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. He should be the source of your completed undivid- and undivided devotion. And I think that's what Paul is calling people to do. They're in Ephesus and today when we read his letters uh just uh, complete and undivided devotion to jesus because he is the one who died for us and was risen for our justification so that to me that is what the gospel is bringing about through paul yeah random thought but i just had to share
1: it my favorite paul verse is romans 5 5 where he says um hope in God doesn't disappoint us because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the spirit which is given to us. And this is the spirit of Jesus. Uh, you, said, you said Paul had a powerful conversion. And I, my first thought was like, okay, we got the road to Emmaus story in Acts um, where he has a, let's say like a remarkable religious experience of, mm. of a vision of Jesus. So you could say that not you, but one could say that, oh, that's why it was a powerful experience because he actually had a vision of Jesus. Like, okay, yeah, whatever. Maybe Luke made that up, okay? We're not biblical anarchists here. We don't know. <laughs> let's just
0: mm-hmm. let's look
1: at the life of Paul and the writings of Paul and let's just leave that story as an open question just for mm-hmm. the exercise of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul was somebody who regarded Jesus as a fraud and his followers as dangerously misguided mm-hmm. the point of trying to prevent the growth of the Jesus movement mm-hmm. in his, among his people. Yeah. Fast forward a couple of years, Paul is inviting the rest of the world into this Jewish Jesus movement. Mm-hmm. Because he can't convince enough of his people to join. He just goes to the rest of the world. And so that's a powerful conversion. Just, look at the before and the after mm-hmm. even without any knowledge necessarily of the conversion itself yeah some for paul jesus has become a power that's animated his life that is a power that has given him love for the people he thought were idiots the people he thought were dangerous people he thought people he hated Mm. And then giving him love for people who are outside of his Jewish people, um, for, pe- for, for people all throughout the Roman world. A love that, like he, Paul never really set down roots after that. He's, he just lives an itinerant life going from city to city, risking his neck because of the love of God poured out into his heart. That's, that's where it led him. So this is the kind of power that Paul manifested in his life. Um, yeah and then we were talking about how that butts up against the other powers that are already there when he arrives in a new city and we got to ask ourselves like well what about our city what about our lives what about the powers we have now if the love of god is poured out into our hearts by the holy spirit Mm -hmm. what gets challenged as a result and how do we negotiate how do we negotiate our living, our our way of life with the powers that be given, um, given our experience of this gospel.
0: Excellent summation of Paul's life. Amazing. Yeah.
1: So this is the problem like we got to solve and I don't have it solved, Um, but it's, it's, I think that the, the phrase I want to use for it is um, Pauline Christian relativism. Okay. There's always this instinct to burn all of your magic books Mm -hmm. and leave town. (laughs) This is one option when you've experienced the gospel is to say, everything around me is filthy and I'm going to leave it all behind. Mm -hmm. And you see this instinct amongst certain Christians. Um, they feel that their experience of the gospel is such that they can no longer participate in in their society, and they they have to leave and form their own societies on the on the perimeters. Um, yeah. So I don't. I'm not sure if I really want to get into this, but I. Whenever I hear about that, I think more of like the Anabaptist instincts. Um, Mm -hmm. right and and i don't mean that in a negative way i just think that this is the instinct of that of those movements is to sort of retreat from the state retreat from participation in the state because allegiance to jesus for them doesn't leave room for cooperation or Mm -hmm. being complicit in connection with the powers and if i'm not mistaken like the phrase anabaptist has to refers to like rejecting baptism but what is really rejecting is baptism into the state this idea in the medieval age in the reformation that um when you're born a couple days later you're baptized and now you're a german (laughs) the baptism of jesus being co-opted as in baptism into the state and so that's a very i mean we kind of take that objection as obvious now but thank we can thank the anabaptists for that lesson
0: Mm. yeah so Pauline Christian relativism, yeah. So the other
1: extreme is just to say, well, i will just going to have Jesus and also Artemis. <laughs> That's the other option. Yeah. So what's what's in the middle, or even mm-hmm. is there any middle ground? Mm-hmm. Well, what do you, what do you think? Like,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, my opinion this is just my opinion. I mean, uh, I think I'm a minimalist when it comes to everything. So again I just go back to what I said and that's that's my practice that's my perspective I try to keep things simple who died for me Jesus okay that's the only person I'm going to serve <laughs> it's as simple as that uh of course I understand that we live in a pluralistic age where there's all manner of religions philosophies and I feel like my duty is to love my neighbor And loving your neighbor means that you try to understand them, you listen to them, Uh, you don't judge things that you don't understand, that you haven't studied, and you give them the benefit of the doubt. And I think people are compelled to worship and believe as they do for a variety of reasons. And the same thing holds true for me. Like, I haven't had their experiences, they haven't had my experience, But again, I think that at the end of the day, to me, Christianity is as simple as, okay, we believe in God, we believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus died for us. And this means something, right? Jesus died for us. therefore, Paul says, we are to live for him and for him alone. Like God has highly exalted Jesus to the highest place. And that is who we are loyalty now i think uh we don't need to demythologize and say all these spirit beings or powers are not real because i mean obviously it seems to be like they are very much real (laughs) in many ways but it does mean that if jesus is lord then um the servant or the slave right i mean that's the metaphor (laughs) lord and slave he is the lord he is who I pay attention to. He is who I serve. So that's 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 my perspective. But of course, it's it's complicated, especially with uh, other systems of religion that are very similar. They make similar claims. It, yeah, it's, it's it's difficult.
1: Well, what I what I have in mind a little bit here is in the in, in the New Testament, in Paul's writing in particular, there's something that he spends at least four chapters working on, which is, um, which is the question of what are we supposed to eat? If we're Christians, what are we supposed to eat? What is it okay okay for us to eat? And it sounds kind of crazy, but... Christian food. Yeah. What is, what counts as good Christian food? And um, why, why is this? And like, and the answer is is because in Corinth and in Rome and probably everywhere, um, meat, because, because of this like ritual worship of local deities, city deities, the gods of families, cities, and whatever involves sacrifices like sacrifices don't usually just get thrown away. They actually get eaten. So, so the, if you go to the gross, the market and you want to buy some meat, that meat is often meat that came from a temple that was used in a sacrifice. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so yes, the Christians in Ephesus have decided to burn all of their magic books. Does that mean that they've also decided to go vegetarian? this is kind of the question (laughs) Mm -hmm. we don't have any comment on this but this comes up in other cities uh, uh, where many people who have left roman religious life of worshiping the gods of your city family and and profession for instance no longer feel comfortable eating eating meat that's come from a, a temple that's come from idol sacrifices to to idols and paul addresses this and i I really actually don't know quite how to handle it yet. But I think that whatever the answer is, I'm going to call it Pauline Christian relativism because he finds a way to say, yes, you can eat the meat, but no, you probably shouldn't if somebody is upset about it or something like that. It's, It's along the lines of that the idols are not real in the sense that Paul can just eat meat and thank god the creator for providing for his meal but if somebody says to him oh paul have this artemis burger (laughs) he's gonna say it's now something different it means something else by the act of eating that he's the his host is being is getting the impression that paul is um supports artemis or or is or is in league with artemis or that it or something like that the question is what is the effect of my participation in this very normal thing having on the people around me Mm -hmm. and and so at the end of the day paul can say whatever you do whether you eat or drink do it to the glory of god and this is kind of how this is kind of how the the gospel confronts the powers It the gospel doesn't say you shall not do all of this stuff it says whatever you do do it to the glory of god and so it's almost as if almost anything is permitted and also almost anything is forbidden depending on what it means in the moment relative to the other powers uh, yeah
0: i think it's uh very tricky yeah. i think also in romans paul says that anything that you do if it does not come from faith to you it is sin right so yeah. in other words he's not giving us rules as much as he's giving us principles and he's also giving us people that we are accountable to right like so for example he says if you believe that it's okay to eat meat but you're surrounded by people who will be troubled by you eating then i'm not gonna eat meat that day like i'm not gonna destroy my brother for the sake of food right So he gives us principles and he gives us people that we are responsible for. And I think also there are different conceptions of what holiness is. So, for example, in the Gospels, in the Old Testament, right? uh, People are concerned that if you come in contact with an unclean person, that makes you unclean. But Jesus seems to function with a different level of holiness a different understanding of holiness, he is free to do that. And he's not concerned that he's going to become unclean when he touches uh, people who are unclean, people who are sick. Uh, He is convinced that the reverse will happen, that his holiness will destroy their uncleanness, their sickness, and bring salvation. And so I like to think that Paul more or less had that understanding as well, that he had this power that enable him not to worry so much about, oh, I'm going to be unclean or I'm going to run into trouble. He was confident that God's power was always at work to make things better in and around his person. Yeah. Yeah, Romans
1: 14, 14, Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. That's the verse you were referring to, I think. Yeah, that's a, yeah. So that's a good summary. It's that we we can't treat uncleanliness as like a as something that something absolutely is. And so so this is. I mean, this is kind of the approach to the powers in a way. <sighs> I'm not sure how I feel about this, but um. Like when we talk about the powers, it's easy for us to get into a frenzy and say, everything is unclean. Let's gather the books and let's burn them, Mm -hmm. right? We don't see Paul standing behind that episode saying, let's all do that. Paul's not drumming up support for this. It's just his message has gotten carried away. And this is what has resulted in in this book burning in Ephesus. But this is the same guy that said nothing is unclean in itself. Like, does that apply to these magic books? I don't know. (laughs) Um, But then he says it's unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And so the idea is is that the spirit of Jesus has the permission in the life of the believer to point at anything that everyone else thinks is okay and tell me that's not okay for me. that it would be, it would be, it would be wrong for me to ignore the spirit and, and act as usual rather than as somebody whose first allegiance is to
0: the gospel. Um, Great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ben. I think we have covered a lot more than I thought we would. And (laughs) again, we, we talked about this uh, sermon that he preached. Uh, I will link to it in the episode notes. So listen to it it's actually a great sermon believe it or not so you should check (laughs) it out (laughs) thanks everyone thank you for listening to this episode of the experiential theology podcast we hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.